I'm sleeping on a freaking cardboard box underneath the largest international freeway in North America. I'm sleeping under that joint, sometimes with no blanket, in a T-shirt, in 40-degree weather, right? And so that is fresh in my mind. The smells, the feeling, the despair, all of those types of things. The gnawing in the pit of my stomach was really fresh for me. The only part that I have to take with me is that I have a frame of reference that reminds me only I don't want to go back to that. I still got to do the work. Mondo, thanks a lot for uh, bringing us into your uh, space at Color Studios down here in Pioneer Square. Uh, man, we got Maya, we got Michael with us today for episode six, right? We're on episode six? Episode six. Yeah. yeah. Man, it's crazy. Yeah. episode six. Time flies. Whew. Man, we really, hey, all right. Uh, yeah, man, we just, uh, we, we wanted to welcome you into this space of Sober Champs and just uh, give you an opportunity to share your story, an at-length story that's interactive and, uh, you know, just, just give you an opportunity to just let us know, man, what, what, what's up, where you've where you been, what you've been doing, and, uh, you know, let's start off with the, usually the, the big question is, uh, do you have a sober date? I do. My sober date is March 21st, 2016. Ooh. Yeah. So I've been considering the prior circumstances. I've been at this for a second. Okay. And it is. That's uh, seven, right? Seven years? Yeah, seven okay. years. All right. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful every day for that. I'm grateful every day for just for today. And I, I know that sounds so cliche, but when you live like, if a person was living like I was living, there, there was no like, uh, there was no good prognosis for what was happening there, because it could end at, a, at the drop of a hat. Uh, with regrets, um, that semi, that semi on the edge of death thing, there's gonna be regrets. Yeah, um, so, so I mean, real quick, like, I mean, that sounds pretty extreme. Let's just get that out of the way, and and so. Um, we, you know, we've been knowing each other since, uh, and I think Rudy as well. We've been seeing each other around the, the hall, and uh, and other meetings as well. But, but well, like, I remember when I met you guys. <laughs> I remember when I met you guys. Where'd you meet us, man? I think I remember I met, too. I yeah. met you guys online. Okay, oh, yeah. Zoom, Zoom meetings. Zoom, yeah. meetings. Yeah. Zoom uh-huh. meetings at the very beginning of the pandemic. Mm. And. Uh, we were, uh, I think we were all in a position where we didn't have, we weren't really, there wasn't a whole lot to choose from. Yeah. It was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And so people's meetings were being infiltrated by outsiders and yeah. taken down and that's not legit and you're not bona fide to be having. And so we, I believe that we all came up with, we had about 20 of us. We came up with our own meeting. We had to. Yeah. Yeah. It was we called had to. NEA. But here's the deal. We had to. Right. Because mm. people were falling off. Well, you were. So, so here, I just remember this part was, so I got sober like, shoot, like six months before the, before uh, cut and shut down. And uh, so I was going to meetings live, like live, 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 live. And then they were like, no meetings. Ugh. You can't, you know, like yeah. none. And so then, Cats were like, I oh, don't know, man. What do we What do we do? Yeah. How do we have yeah. a meeting yeah. without a meeting hall? Like, what yeah. does this look like, man? The book, you know, thing. The literature doesn't tell us what to do in a during 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 a full on shutdown, right? Oh. So, yeah. so yeah, that Zoom Zoom was very important, at least for my recovery. Like, yeah, yeah, just being on the road. Move. I remember playing soccer almost every morning, uh, and 
just having it on, like on my headset on, and I'm kicking the ball around and just in the meeting. And uh, it was really uh, not everybody was on board. Not everybody, because you got to remember, we had, we were uh, the bunch of us were doing. Um, oh yeah, for those of you that are watching this, we all have done some work with. Um, with some high school age kids and we do volunteer stuff and we have some mutual friends of ours in this thingy that um they they work with high schools they needed something too they had to be in, we had to have something right we had to right because they're people's people's man now that we look back on the results of what that pandemic did to people what we know now is their lives our lives were at stake mm. there's a lot of people that did not make it out of that pandemic and that we're doing well going into the pandemic. They were fine. Everything, not a cloud on the horizon, as they say, and everything was fine. Um, and I'm glad that I, that's how I met you guys, though. Yeah. yeah. We may very well have just created a community that, and a lot of us are still in touch. We were in touch mm -hmm. before that, but it was good to, to see that because um, there's a lot of survivability and there was a lot of healing in that. People were, people were lost and even came back in the midst of the pandemic just because of that meeting whoa yeah the zoom era was wild and then it's crazy to like meet somebody in person that you you only seen them online yeah. and then it's like what's up man blah, blah blah like when we would when things open back up yeah. right and then we just been pretty close ever since like I, every time i see you man it's like yeah it's just like every that's, time. My, that's my brother well, every and time. then the first time we met in person after the pandemic, it wasn't but about eight of us at a picnic table. We couldn't even go inside the building. We were yeah. out in the parking mm -hmm. lot at right. the hall. Right. Oh. I remember, I remember, so um, yeah. one of the things is, like, I just remember you being kind of uh, really, really cool with Seth. And, like, how Seth, yeah. you know, he participates in the recovery high school. Yeah. And, like, so have you done some volunteer work up there, or like, with that school? Yeah. I've went up and spoke three times. Okay. And, um. I went up there with one of our sisters, and um, she shared. And um, um, I've done some other stuff that was job related, but involving the kids. And then through that, we've um, a nonprofit was developed out of that same group of kids, and and also with the high school and the, and most of that core community. And uh, as a lot of us, and we deal and we've participated in that. And um, this is not about. One thing that I've come to find out is it's always about recovery. But what in the in the in its essence, it's it's the spiritual business of saving lives. Hmm. You have an opportunity and a shot when if you if I should say if I reach out and I do it the right way and do it authentically, somebody's somebody's got a shot at making it the next day, not just me. Right? Right. I, it's they call it coexist for a reason. I'm not living this all by myself. It's pretty lonely when it's all by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Given that getting this mm -hmm. gift and then just sitting around like, yeah, buddy, I'm sober, but I'm alone. This is great. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is great. Wow. That's yeah. I've yeah. really made it, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that fun. No, that's the thing. When you have p other people that are walking this journey with you, like, Cause that's one thing I know. I, I ran into you one time, like at Sal's Barbershop. Yeah. We was getting our haircut, <laughs> yeah. and like I always find it so funny and so like joyful when I run into people in recovery out in like the so-called real world. Yeah. And I just like it's just like we have this code between us or something that it's like this understanding that it's like man, we made it out. Like kind of like they talk about like we made it out uh, on the life rafts from 
from the sinking ship. And then we're just like so joyful and camaraderie and stuff like that. Yeah. So that's yeah, how yeah. I feel when I see you like out in public yeah. and stuff. Like, yeah, what's up, my guy? Yeah, because they say the reality is not like when you're in, when I was in treatment. I remember them saying only and there was like there was probably I was at a treatment center in Spokane. There might have been three hundred people at this treatment center, and they said, "Man, there ain't gonna be about that twenty five of you that make it." If that, and I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that, that <laughs> oh, was so just... when we see one another, we understand, we understand because mm. not only are we, are we out here in living regular life, like we saw each other at the barbershop, I see people mm. at the grocery store, they say we're mm. not, we weren't even supposed to make it to the grocery store, right? Mm. Right? We, it, you, we're just supposed to just either die in the streets die in prison or die in an asylum or die in a hospital that was the end result that's what people that's what happens to a lot of people that's the that's the god honest truth a lot of people do not there's a mortality associated with recovery it's either a yes you live or no you don't now that could be a prolonged death Mm. out of misery or it can be a prolonged life out of joy and freedom and we get to at some point after the reprieve and the rescue, we get a chance to make a choice, right? And I was not aware of that. I just thought that I just needed a good run of luck and the right people like you guys around to help save me. I don't got to do any work. Just Pete, really save me, man. Mm. Yep. <laughs> I'm here, right? right? I showed up. That only lasts. You only get that one for about 30 days. Yeah. <laughs> you ain't lying. Yeah, you yeah, ain't lying. I know mm. that each of us have been around some 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 great men and great persons and great women and, or whatever. We've been around great people that have called us to account for um, the gift we've been given, like you said. It doesn't do any good to do this alone. You're gonna, we're, we're called to account um, in a way that is uh, about giving, it's about serving, and it's about having to show up when I don't want to. Yeah, because I don't like doing this. I don't like doing this. I would rather, I would rather somebody handed it to me. I would rather it be in a situation where I could purchase it and make payments on this, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, I think going back to one of the things you said, it's like twenty five people make it out of it. I remember being in treatment, and they were like, "Yeah, so one out of ten <laughs> people are gonna make it." And I looked around like, "Yeah, right, dude. There's ninety of us in here. Like, there's no way." And then I was like, "Oh." What? Well, count me in. I was like, yeah, "This is yeah. I got it. This is my life depends on it." I guess like this is what we're gonna we're gonna do. And uh, all right, let's let's take you let's take it back a little bit. So, um, can you recall maybe the first time you you might have like you you got interested in in alcohol and drugs? Like that that little that moment of like, oh, this is it. Uh, the first time I, oh, I think it was the first time I did it. It was it. It was a good feeling, but the fact I did it, my mom didn't know about it. I remember that feeling, and it was a, uh, it was bourbon, and I remember my. It was a situation where I knew. My mom was not gonna find out. I was just the the stars had aligned just right. There wasn't a check in coming. There wasn't 
knock on the, there's none of that is happening. And I, and I, and I did that. And I, and um, I felt I had, I had um, defied, uh, I defied somebody. I finally stood up for myself. So that euphoric feeling wasn't even about, um, now I fit in. Like a lot of people will say, well, now I felt like I fit in. I always fit in, but I always felt like I, uh, I always felt like I was being scrutinized by um, by my parents. Uh, what I've come to find out is there's that's so far from the truth. It was all about love and care, but I wanted to do what I wanted to do, mm. and that was that day. And it just so happened that it was um, enhanced. Um, <laughs> it was triggered by some doggone good bourbon. I still remember the feeling. I remember the Mount St. Helens whiskey bottle. Uh, it was it shaped like Mount St. Helens with the cork on. I still remember Damn. the bottle. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like a cool bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was it back back in the days when people collected uh, corny terracotta freaking uh, liquor bottles and stuff. So, how yeah. old were you? Fourteen. Okay. All right. And I was fourteen, mm. and uh, I had a I had a football game the next day too. Yeah, I had a football game the next day. And the whole weekend just rolled right. It rolled right. Um, and I remember the feeling. How did you perform at that football game? Excellent. Right? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like, I'd get loaded. Yeah. I'd do everything. Yeah. And then I'd show up and be like, man, all yeah. right. Like, yeah. that didn't really that didn't really harm me too much. Yeah. And yeah. there was an association with that, too. Like, success, back-to-back days, <laughs> right? Mm. Back-to-back days, you know. Um, and, and that, that even prolonged the thing. Like I associated freedom, independence, um, identification. I was able to identify with who I was. I thought like, I'm, oh, I'm, this is who I am and, and let's Mm. roll. And I associated that until I was 46 years old. I associated the feelings of alcohol with I'm okay. Mm. You're in control. You're a success. Mm. You're going to win. Back-to-back days coming up. You're a winner. Just yeah. drink it. Let's roll. Yeah. That's how I felt, too, with alcohol. That Like, when I first started drinking that, I felt like I was regaining control. Yeah. Like, I had control. All of a sudden, I hear a lot of people that are, like, normal drinkers are saying they, they lose control. And it's like, for me, when I had those first couple drinks, <laughs> everything is starting to gain control. Yeah. Every The stars aligned. Yeah. Like, everything started. Yeah. Did, mm-hmm. did you notice in sports, like, in golf, when you would get lit, lit like was that? Were you a better golfer? You thought? No, no, okay. not at all. Oh, really? Yeah, no. I but uh, bowling. I would go bowling, and man, having a couple drinks, and even more than a couple drinks, man, you get in that groove, and you get in that flow, and everything. Yeah, the stars are aligned, and everything. I used to play baseball in high school, and we used to smoke weed and drink and stuff before baseball games, and that was a sport that was kind of like an odd sport that you could like still be loaded <laughs> yeah. and playing yeah. it. Yeah, I, I remember one time I, I smoked some weed. I was playing for SIBL, uh, Seattle International Baseball League. Shout out uh, <laughs> the CD out there, man, Coach Parker, uh, Parcel. What happened was I remember smoking weed in the alley, coming to practice, and I was geeked. And I was playing center field. And these balls were coming, and I was just like, oh, my God. Like, they would just come, like these grounders would come out. And they would just hit my shin, and it, and I'll never forget. Like we all hunt, we came in, and that uh, the uh, my other homies they knew 
they knew that I was I was loaded. And then Parcel was like, "Hey Pete, how's it going?" And <laughs> see, we're in the CD. I, I was the only white kid on the team, and there, you know, they knew. But I was sitting there like, "I'm fine. I'm cool." <laughs> like, yeah. I'm fine. yeah. So weed and baseball never mixed for me. It was, it was slow motion. It was bad. I Soccer, yeah. Yeah, but, I never, I never. Um, yeah, I was never in a position where I, I was okay with that, with uh, using before performances. Not, um, not in the cards because I just felt like I always felt like that that part about being scrutinized and watched. Um, I always felt like people were paying attention. I mean, it was the self centeredness. I grew. I was the only, besides my brother, I was the only black kid in the whole school. And what I, school did you go to? I went to uh, Liberty High School oh, out yeah. in East Renton, Issaquah, and I went to Maywood Junior High. I went to the junior high that's in the in the district is um, also same deal, you know what I mean? It wasn't a situation like they're watching me because they're gonna get me after school type of deal. It was just like I just felt different mm. all the time, and my differences, how I felt different, was magnified. And when I uh, I didn't want to ruin the times where I thought people weren't paying attention to it, was through music and sports, and that was like sanctuary. That was the time mm. where I didn't hear yeah. the end. I didn't hear any of the end jokes. I didn't hear any of the wisecracks or the stuff that yeah. I better not retaliate against because I'd gotten to the point to where all retaliation was um, down for suspension. Right. Because I, w I, w I, w I would explode. And um, I think that that's a common th thread with this, this group right here is that sports was like this place to go that would take us away from the things that were happening outside of sports. Like that was our Definitely. like sanctuary where mm -hmm. we would just go, and then like we were very successful in some of the things that we did, mm -hmm. and so then that was like oh it's so peaceful, and then you get out of that and be like man, yeah. this place sucks man like and then you go back, but then you mix the drugs in, and then the alcohol and and, and it all kind of starts to fall at least it fell apart for me. Yeah, I had that same thing. Well, for golf too, it was mm -hmm. I did have that sanctuary thing. Like it was like a very sacred thing when I stepped onto that golf course because it was a very personal thing for me that that was like where I found my peace and my zen and stuff like that so then I would get loaded after I played golf yeah. but it was like I, once I stepped past that gate it was like it was a kind of like a spiritual experience for me um to play golf but then uh I didn't want to disrespect the game oh yeah mm -hmm. I got most of the guys that I played ball with All the all the guys that I was that I played ball with, they're they're very supportive of where I am now. Like I always thought that they, you know, would think something bad about me or or think ill of me. But the, my both of my quarterbacks that I played with, one in high school and the other I played with in junior high, his um, his sons like they're playing for the Division Two championship or some NCAA Division Two. Anyway, he he was my quarterback growing up. And those guys are supportive, man. They always, whenever I say something on social media, they're always, and um, that's that thing that, that when we talk about sanctuary, it's the only time those people are what I wished my life had was always like. I wish I had that feeling that you have at practice, um, that BSing in the locker room, that BSing on the travel bus, mm -hmm. that defying the coach and giggling on that the fellow, It's like fellowship. Like it's your fellowship. The same thingy that right. we have 
with this with this fellowship that's the feeling that that's the only thing i can compare it to right. is the is the fellas man right it's mm -hmm. the fellas and even the girls that i grew up with that played ball and were hanging around it's the same type of thing they're very supportive very supportive and it's and i think it's that thing that um the team the camaraderie the you get me i got your right. back no matter what that was all anybody's ever searching for mm. that's all anybody really wants is that feeling and some people will never some people that's why a lot you'll find a lot of ex-athletes in the program that yeah. do pretty good because we understand mm -hmm. oh that's right this is the fellowship right yeah. oh or people that are musicians or whatever it's backstage oh i get it i get it this is what okay this is where i was always really good right. is when i was around people that were like-minded this is the same thing and i can i can compartmentalize that now i can identify with uh, what it means to participate, do my part, mm. not do too much, not force my way to the front and be a ball hog, right? right. Yeah. yeah. You don't have See? to be the quarterback. Yeah, you, you don't, don't have, have to yeah. be. Yeah. And I can live like that. Yeah. So so take us through um, maybe a couple scenarios that like, man, like you were out of control and you kind of picked up on maybe you had something going on that other people didn't. Like were there instances in your life where alcohol and drugs kind of knocked you around pretty well that you were like oh i might be a little different than than some of the other folks that i i i hang out with or <laughs> have seen um definitely um i was a i was a fighter as a high, in high school and post high school for a couple of years i was a fighter Drink. Like a boxer or like a get loaded well, fighter? Yeah, get loaded <laughs> fighter because <laughs> I was. It was a little and, different. Yeah, all right, all right. And um, there's going to be people that see this that are going to laugh. I was like, I was a superb, superb wrestler growing up. I was superb, man, like really, really good. And I would uh, use that when I got drunk. I used to like to fight. Because I was not, a, I was not, I ended up not being the biggest guy. And uh, I would like to get drunk and really uh, have you forget that. So <laughs> I, I, I had issues. I had issues with, I had a little man complex. I went into high school as a freshman at four foot 11, like 87 pounds, walking around a four year high school looking like that, man. And I was really self conscious. So when it came time, Physically, when I caught up a little bit, I, I I immediately went to work when I drank, and that was one of the things that happened. Um, and people would be like, "Man, uh, we're not. You can't. You and your buddies, because I had a couple buddies. You guys are not coming to this party if you're doing that. You guys are not. Only are you guys drinking? We would be checked, and uh, uh, <laughs> I would be checked at the door of most parties growing up because of because of my behavior, man. And I should have known then um, that I was a little bit I was a little bit different when I drank. I knew I, I knew I had an issue. I knew I had an issue because a couple of people called me an alky. I had a buddy, my best friend Tony. He was like, uh, "How do you? You're you got a you got a problem, man. You're an alcoholic." Man, keep mm. that down. Don't say that. Not me. <laughs> I'm not an alcoholic, man. I barely drink. Right. I just started drinking. What are you talking about? And uh, it escalated to the point to where I carried that through 
till I was in my 40s. Drink, fight. Drink alcohol, confrontation. Drink alcohol, confront. Drink alcohol, and uh, what did you say? And constantly puffing my chest out because I was. I, what I found out is what I found out is that I was secure and scared about what you thought of me, particularly what you thought of how I looked in reference to everything else around me. You know what I mean? Like I, I must. You just don't like me because. Or are you are you trying me because, or if you only knew you wouldn't be doing that because, and that's how I operated in that frame of thought yeah. all the time. I had a lot of that going on too because I was always a smaller guy too, and and drinking alcohol. Yeah, I didn't would, have that problem. Would tra- no. would, <laughs> alcohol would transform me like all of a sudden I felt two feet taller and I felt a lot tougher and I, I had a lot of that going on and gotten some brawls and stuff because I tried to puff my chest out and you know, picked on some guys that were way bigger than me. And, and, uh, but for the most part, I wasn't really a angry drunk. I was, I was pretty, pretty happy. And like, I love you, man. Like that, that kind of drunk, but every now and then I would try to like puff myself up. Cause you know, I had that ins- insecurities, but it was like this kind of weird balance where I had like this super insecurity, but I had this huge ego too. So it's like egomaniac with the in- inferiority, complex it's like how does that work yeah i remember it was like the alcohol i used to blame it on the type of alcohol i'd be like mm. tequila nope <laughs> i get in fights all the time with tequila that ain't gonna yeah. work then i switch to hennessy all right hennessy will work for a little oh nope nope no i don't know man maybe vodka maybe maybe and i just keep switching it every time i well not every time but i'd find out through trial and error that like uh this alcohol doesn't work so i gotta try something else and then and then I go with that for a while, not very many problems. And then, and then <laughs> something would happen where it's yeah. like, hey, man, what are you, are you? And so, yeah. Did they, did yeah. that ever happen with you, like you guys? Yeah. Like, like the alcohol just started switching? Oh, the alcohol. For sure. The alcohol switched with my persona. Mm. See, you guys, you, you guys are a lot younger. You guys are a lot younger than me. I, I will tell you, today's generation, a lot of the kids, they grew up, they grew, they're growing up in an environment where persons of color and white kids and Asian kids all hang out together. It's just whatever, right? Um, they grew up in an era where, in a time in our, in our history where hip-hop is everywhere. It's in commercials. It's in, on the side of buses. It's got personas everywhere, and the sound is everywhere. I grew up at a time in my adolescence where that was not either there, and when it was there, it was not okay. And it wasn't until a point about I would say it was right about the time Crush Groove came out and then the movie Colors was a little came out and there was a soundtrack to that and rap started to become mainstream. Right? And I went from and it and it was weird, it went from not being invited to a whole lot of places huh. to being the to being to showing up as um the cool fad like a representation of what was supposed to be at the time a fad which they thought would eventually go away and wouldn't you know what i mean and so i played the whole persona i would drink 40 ounces i would tip my hat i would wear uh, uh sweatsuits 
I would uh, I, I was into breakdancing. I was into uh, uh, UMTV raps, and uh, yeah, I would I would play this whole persona, and that was part of what made it even more livable. The idea of overt alcoholism for me, uh, as I drank forties and and sipped California coolers, and just the order of the day and the way it was in America, it was all of a sudden cool to uh, not only was it okay to <laughs> When you're 16, 17, girls are a big thing. To go from, if I catch you talking to that that Michael kid, I will, we, we have no idea, I have no idea what kinds of conversations, but I can imagine at that time, I can imagine in the 80s what kind of conversations some parents probably had to like uh, defying mom and pops, to being, uh, to even dressing and talking and doing the whole thing and that, and chasing that euphoric feeling of being all of a sudden popular, accepted, um, talk like him, be like him, dress like that. Um, Mike, did you hear this? Uh, listen to this. Uh, uh, give us the expertise on on this whole thing. It was really it was a strange dynamic to just all of a sudden it went from stay away from him to like oh Michael, how are you? So like, it was really it was really strange and. Um, a lot of allowable behavior mm. came about by that. Um, and I influenced a lot of bad behavior in other people from that. But wait a second. I need to back up. You talking about the start of the hip-hop era and everything. Like, how old are you, my guy? Because I'm, I'll be 53 in September. Yeah, because I'm like, you look great for your age. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he's looking younger yeah. than me. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> let's I'm, go, I'm 40. Let's go, man. He's he's kept a, a good good health to I him. I mean, man. that's the power of recovery right there. Just yeah. in the the way we look, yeah. And the way our appearances. Come on. Yeah, and it was uh, that, uh, and that that acceptance and that that idea of who I was was all manufactured and phony. I could go, I could essentially buy it out of a beer cooler. Well, in those days, you stole forties, you stole forty ounces. I wasn't quite twenty one yet. I could drink the persona, I could dress it, and I could talk it. Even though I'm from Issaquah, Washington, raised by white parents, I was never went anywhere near the hood except for going through on the bus on the way to Husky Stadium to go watch the game. Ooh. Never been to the CD, Ooh. right? Right. And so I would I would play this whole thingy in order to for you for people to like me. And so so what would happen what would happen when you encounter cats like that were like about that shit? Like, yeah, what's up, man? I don't know. Like there had to be uh, some moments where you encounter cats that were like, really, like, I what's up, yo? I really went into full thes <laughs> I went into full thespian uh, uh Denzel Washington Academy Award winning freaking <laughs> mother for real. Yeah. And I did yeah. the doggone thing and it was about survivability and um not only, not only am, is my safety in this idea that, because we're at this time, there's a lot of, the gang members are not posing here in Seattle at that time. In the mid to late 80s, they're not posing. They're up here and they're doing their thing and they're doing it for real. So it wasn't about just my survival, survivability and um, livelihood. It was about maybe somebody was with me. I might be at South Center Mall, which is Westfield. There might be a confrontation. I might be the one to have to break it up, and I might have to to do put on this persona, and that was more than one time that that happened. Um, 
Yeah, I just, uh, I look back on that period and that is where I developed the skills for this chameleon mm. aspect that we all, persons that identify as we do, one of the things that is a common thread is we put on a shell and we put on uniforms and we are chameleons. Any, or, anywhere we go. Anywhere we go. Mm. That's an order for me to feel good. That's right. just an order for me to... I, it was. I look back on it. It was all in an order to not for you to not threaten me and ask me about me. Mm. Don't ask me about me. That's the last thing we need you to do, right? Yeah. No, we're talking over. I, that's why I would dress nice. I dress nice so you could talk about my hat, <laughs> my shirt, my shoes. Oh man, nice yeah. shoes, Pete. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, and then yeah. Pew, look. Let's let's drink. Let's smoke. What are we doing? I'm not. So yeah, that's that's so uh let, let's uh fast forward a little bit to when when things got a little like uh unmanageable. Now now we're we're at the you said I mean that's a lot of using, you know, from let's say fifteen to what'd you say, forty? Forty six. Yeah, forty six. I mean, so obviously there's a lot in there, but what what was some of these months? like you got close at that forty six year mark of being like, Oh yeah, this is like what were some things that were happening? I, well, I, I got into other stuff, dry goods notwithstanding. I got into some other stuff at about eighteen, nineteen, uh, and uh, it escalated quickly. Escalated to like proportions to where uh, I was homeless and on the street at. 23. So in four short years, I went from working as a dental assistant during the day, waiting tables at a private club at a racetrack at night, pocketfuls of money, uh, renting a house, not an apartment, renting a house up on Benson Hill. Uh, And in good standing with, semi-good standing with my family. And my friends knew something was up. They knew the drinking. I had a couple friends there. They knew what was up. Uh, as far as like what? I, I was doing a whole lot of cocaine. Yeah. And couldn't, and it was, it was, it was bad. Uh, I was out all night, all the time. And it got to a point to when it snapped out of it and I realized what was wrong. I had lost everything pretty much. I'd lost everything except my ID and social security card so I could go get a job at Taco Bell. Yeah. I was making, in 1989, I was making right around $9 an hour as a dental assistant expanded duties what that meant is the doctor and the hygienist could, could leave me alone and i could do whatever i needed to do in the office except administer except for shots and except for uh with the exception of mechanical devices x-rays polish all of that type of stuff at that time that's more than double the minimum wage at that time that's double the minimum wage at that time just about and uh i lost all that and I was on the streets, and I am up all night, scurrying off to Taco Bell in the morning, and it is coming apart quick. 
and at that time is when I discovered you don't have to just use all the coke. You can sell some of it, too. But inside of that, uh, the area where you're going to make the most money is going to be in the area of converted forms of cocaine, <laughs> as it were, right? And so I, I, I quickly delved into that. And in short order, in uh, 1995, I was homeless, in the streets, sleeping under I-5, in doorways, and ended up in prison with no prior criminal record, no juvenile record, no nothing. I was on my way to prison, man, with a habit. Yeah, with a habit. And we're talking not about, we're not talking, I'm drinking whatever I can get my hands on at that time. Uh, I, at that time, right before I got convicted, I was crossing the street right up here on Jackson and, um, I was on Jackson, right there before you come under I-5 and headed up toward International District, toward 12. Mm -hmm. I apparently walked out in front of traffic. What I, this is what I remember. I fell asleep walking. I've been up for that many days. I walked out in the traffic. I remember that. And I had a mouthful of dope. And I got hit from behind, flew 50 feet, and... Um, Hit from, with a car? With a car. Oh, Walked, my man. Flew 50 feet and hit the front of a Metro bus and um, mm. collapsed lung, broken jaw. Collapsed lung, broken jaw. And I um, I got hit by that car so hard, I didn't get a possession charge. You know why? Because it flew out of your mouth. It went right down my throat. Oh. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I left the hospital two days later in a gown with my face. Hadn't been... I broke my jaw. They hadn't did the surgery yet to wire my, so I had that compression tape around my jaw. I left in a Oh, like the wrap? Yeah, I left in the hospital gown to go drink 40 ounces over there off of Yes Sir at that little convenience store. And then walked my mask back up in the hospital before they knew I was going. And what? had surgery the next day. What? Yeah. Come on. Hmm. Come on. So that's 95. That was 95, yeah. Yeah. So then... Keep going, like yeah. What's up? That was a big. That <laughs> yeah. was a problem. That was a problem. So, I get to I I I'm a first time felon, so they decide. You know what? We're gonna send you to boot camp, of course. Um, and I remember the look on my parents' face when they came to sentence. And, and this later on, I learned this is how I knew that I had I, I was an alcoholic. Is I was I was tore up about all that. Like oh my goodness, my. My dear mother and my father are here. Like their their boy is on his way to, uh, he's on his way to prison. The very thing that my parents, my parents are both from New York. They were active in the movement in the 60s and all that, right? Fighting for persons of color to be able to vote. My mom registering people to, my dad was a teacher and uh on the college radio station, back when Bill Cosby, before he was ever doing what he did, he interviewed Dick Gregory and all those type of people on the college radio station in Long Island. And uh, so he understood what I was up against anyway, right? And for him to be in court talking to that judge, talking about, and I remember what my dad said, I know you guys have to do what you gotta do, but understand my son is salvageable. 
and I did not believe that at the time. I didn't believe that. I knew that there was something, something bad was happening because I can't stop putting anything in my body, right? Right, because on your own, left to your own devices, you knew that, like, man, I need some all the time. Best thing that ever happened to me is my parents never bailing me out. Whew. You ever been to jail? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that was one of the rules in my house. My dad said, listen, <laughs> if you ever go to jail, yeah. do not call me. Yeah. Do not call your mom because we will not be taking you out. And I now remember going and calling. Yeah. And he said, remember what I told you? Mm. Have a good time. Yeah. And he just click. And I was like, wow. no, he really like he really meant that shit. Yeah. I was like, oh. Yeah, yeah so you, you didn't get bailed out, and, and now your parents no. is, have kind of spoke on the fact that, like, man, he's salvageable. He, he, he can, he, he's got it in him to, like, change. So I go off to this boot camp, McNeil Island. I go off to this boot camp. And, um, McNeil Island. That's yeah. Keep uh, going, man. People, go people Mc... shout out McNeil Island. Yeah, <laughs> I go out to McNeil Island. Here's the deal. I get to prison. I get to the processing. I'm f I, well, the whole the whole thing is surreal to me because you, you only see this in the movie. I mean, from my experience, I don't. I didn't grow up with anybody that went to prison. <laughs> you lived yeah. in Issaquah. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't have yeah. any parents that were. There was none of that. None of that. None of that. None of that. The biggest juvenile facility at the time, one of the biggest juvenile facilities in the state, is just up the freeway. I don't know anybody who's even been there. Right. And so I, uh, I, I get ready to, I, I'm thinking this is, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a little freaked out and I get to Shelton, the processing center and everybody up in there. I know everybody. So immediately I have this relief, which I wish now at the time it would have been like blood in blood out or something like that. Right. But as it happened, it was like, um, like they drove a bus through the block of the CD, down through Aurora, down through downtown, through Belltown, and loaded everybody up and put them on a bus and drove them out to Shelton. Ooh. There wasn't anybody I didn't know. Right. My my safety wasn't at stake. Um, the things that they say you should learn from the fear of having your freedom take away, taken away was not there. Mm -mm. It wasn't there. It wasn't there. And uh, the mentality of the mentality uh, that I should have acquired or the ideas that I should have acquired about getting my life better never presented themselves. It was just more like they say it was scheming and plotting about how I was going to get better at doing the things that I was doing sideways. And so I got released, hung on for about. <laughs> so you tried, you got sober though. Yeah, Are you were sober. sober in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I, yeah, got sober in there, and um, I hung on for about maybe forty days. Maybe. Were you going I, to meetings or anything, or like it was doing, a straight dry, straight we're, dry, just doing what I had to do. Yeah. And immediately um, got back into trafficking, and that lasted another couple years. And I got another case and got sent back to prison again. What year was that? That was ninety nine. Yeah, I got I got sent back in ninety nine, and I had to do. Did your parents show up? My parents did not show up at this sentencing. The only person that came and visited me was my two little sisters. 
came and saw me on Thanksgiving Eve. Yeah, they came and saw me. How long did you stay there? I was uh, I was at the county jail that time for like maybe four months, and then off to Shelton again. Did fourteen months. Did a uh, I did a treatment program in prison. Got out immediately. Sixty ninety. 92 days later, I caught another case. This time they gave me 102 months. Oh, 102 months? Yeah, and they split that in half and uh, sent me to another in, in treatment program inside of prison. So I did 33 months. What did you get? What, okay, if you don't mind, what what do you what'd you do for 102? Like, what was your charge? What? My charge was delivery. Oh. This was back in the days, like, the stuff people are doing out there now, that most of that is, uh, those are offenses that would have you in Walla Walla, some of the stuff that people are doing now. My combined total amount of drugs that I sold to the police out of three charges was less than a gram. Wow. Yeah, so I'm telling you, Damn, the thing is, things bro. are different. And this is, and I say that, and I always share that, because the power of alcoholism, the power and pull of having to have a drink, knowing that that was happening was not of consequence. Right. Didn't matter. I knew you, we don't have a system here in Washington where it says maybe I can con the judge into less time. It's minimum mandatory sentencing. You get caught, you know what you got coming. Automatically, you don't even have to go to court really to do it. You don't have to show up. You can sign paperwork. You know what you have coming. It's minimum mandatory sentencing. I knew I had 102 months coming if I caught another beat. And 92 days later, I was already in the throes of addiction, man, and, and doing my thing. Drinking profusely, uh, doing it all. Yeah. Car wrecking the whole nine yards. Yeah. I was doing all of that. And so I say that, and I always share that because I want people to understand that. There's people out there that will tell us, well, you have people that are out there, they have a choice. You don't have a choice yet. You get to a point to where you have a choice. But until there's an intervention of some sort, you don't have a choice. Something has to happen in order for to separate me with access to drinking, to the alcohol, and to the, to the drugs. Something has to happen. It has to. Because I don't have the ability to... It's why... And this is the sad part, because I know people this happens with. That's why suicide is sometimes an option for people. Because the inability to not go there and they can't get that interruption or that intervention. Mm. Nothing ever comes to stop that intervention. It's almost like that is the intervention. That's the intervention. That's the intervention. And thank God, I look back on it now. The way that I drink, if I was out there today in the same situation out there today as I was in the year 2000, I would be dead. 100%. 100%. No doubt. Because there's you, yeah. you are, nobody's coming. Right. Nobody's coming to stop me. I'll be in a mm. tent chilling. <laughs> yeah. For real. Like yeah. I'll, you, me, Rudy. Just in a tent. A lot of people out there yeah. on that fentanyl. For real. Yeah. That damn fentanyl. And that fentanyl, boy, it ain't it ain't like, I don't know. It was was it was it Stevon talking about it? It was like it was fun. Like it was cool to. He was like it was cool to smoke the crack pipe and like pass it around and and like we were playing cards and dominoes and it yeah. was cool. Yeah. 
And it didn't, it, no, he was tweaking. But it's this, it's this introduction of fentanyl that, like, man, I'm, it, I think we're all very blessed to, like, not be a part mm-hmm. of Amen. that suffering right now today. And, and so, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, and I have so many, I have so many people that are close to me that um, are still suffering from that, from opiates. And this whole thing, man, it, it's, it's, um, and it's, it's so, it's, um, it's frightening. Because so we're, we're, we're going to get to that. But because that's one of the parts of your story that, like, where you've gotten to. <laughs> so so now you've gone you've gone into prison. You got the 102. You're cutting that in half. What, you got 51. Now you're, now what year is this when you're going to do 51? This is uh, 2004. So 2004, you got some time now. So 2004 out of that 51, I, get, I, I, I run off 33 at them. And I get into work release. Right, I'm doing my thing, and um, I I I can't I can't stop using I can't report because I can't stop drinking, <laughs> Pete. I can't stop drinking, man. You're asking me to come down to this office, and back then it wasn't they didn't play around with you about a breathalyzer, a UA. Will you go report if it is sideways? Uh, they are putting you in cuffs on the spot, and they are driving you to the county, and you are on your way to the prison processing center within the next week guaranteed and so i'm not coming man i got drinking to do i cannot make it there i'm sorry uh back this pay phone's in i'm sorry <laughs> look i'm he sorry to put it up like mm-hmm. it was a cell phone yeah, <laughs> yeah. Pay phone, hello cord yeah, yeah. And i'm not doing i'm not coming right and um they so s- now they there's a warrant and they send me back <gasps> they send me back i gotta go give them 31 more the other what? Half, I gotta go give him the other half of that. Yeah, the other half of that 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 uh. So 102 months with the good time and all that. Yeah, I gotta go give him 31 more. I can't stay clean off of that one either. There's still 14 more months hanging on the end of that sentence. So I'm out doing my thing. I get sent back for violations a bunch of. Stuff. I cannot stop, Pete. There's nothing, Rudy. I can't stop. They send me back for 14 more months, and I do it in a county jail in the middle of Yakima, man, out in the boondocks, and I still can't stop. I still can't stop, and they violate me and violate me, and I'm back and forth, and they send me to treatment like two or three times, and I still can't stop. And um, I'm desperate now. I'm desperate now. And they come to me on one violation. I'm getting ready to go do this violation in Monroe or somewhere like that. And they come to me with some paperwork. They're tired of you. Sign this paper, and when you uh, go to your hearing, you're going to be off of uh, community custody, and you don't have to worry about reporting anymore. Oh, they they freed you. They said, we're tired of this. They didn't free me, man. I ended up in the worst shape of my life from that. There was never any interruption from there on. That was 2011. I did not get an uh, intervention of any sort until 2000, till March 21st, 2016. That's when the intervention came, and that is my clean date. That's when it finally. So I went on a four and a half, five year run, man. And I mean, just like snarling, messy. I was living under I 5 the whole time. Um, 
I was, I lot, uh, there was a shooting that people, everybody heard about. It was on the world news. In the jungle, there was a shooting, and they went up in there and did that. I was supposed to be sitting there, but I couldn't get down there because I had fell asleep sitting in a chair, and someone stole my shoe and couldn't get the other one off of my other foot. My foot was too swollen. I couldn't get the other shoe, so I was stuck in the chair. And uh, somebody said they need you. Somebody wants to see you down in the, in the other part of this underneath the freeway, and I couldn't go. I wasn't going to walk in the glass, so I never went. They ended up killing four people. And then a couple months later, I was, I was in the county jail. They finally filed charges on another delivery, and so that's how I got, that's how I got clean and sober. From that so you lived in the jungle? I was living in the jungle. Man, tell us a little bit about, a little bit about the jungle, man. Harrowing. Uh, now that I look back on it, I had gotten. Um, it was rough living, but it was tolerable considering what I needed to feed. And that was I had to drink, I had to, I had to have, I had to put, I had to put things in my body. I had to, I had to, to feel all right. I was on the run from I had no idea what. I was on the run. Uh, and I really thought it was going to be a matter of time before I just I was I I was prepared. I was prepared mentally, and um, spiritually I was kind of in a position to where if I die, then I die. I, I I can do that. I kind of in the back of my mind made enough separation from the people that loved me, my parents and my brother and sister and all that. My father had since passed. My father died while I was in prison. Um, so I still had my mother and my siblings and that, and I was at a point to where I was okay. If, if, if I had got taken out down here in the middle of this nonsense, uh, this gang warfare and drug warfare that's just teeming with people getting hurt, hospitalizations, FBI, DEA, and all this nonsense going on, if I die, then that's okay too. I've had a good run. I've had a good run, but there's really no way out of this. There's no way out of this. So when I see people out here on the sidewalks and I hear people outside of my apartment now going through the dumpster, fighting, and when I hear shopping carts in the middle of the night rolling by on the sidewalk in Fremont out my window and I hear that, I know what they're, I know, I know exactly what they're feeling. I, I know. The difference for them than it is for me is the people I was around and the activity I was in. I was either going to get shot and killed or I was going to be in federal prison for a long time. I, those were the two things that were going to happen, right? Because I wasn't shooting dope. I didn't do using it. I've never used intravenous drugs. And uh, the type of drugs that were around, nobody's overdosing. So I don't have to worry about that, right? So those are the two options. You're either going to do a long time in prison or you're going to end up dead. The people that are out here now don't have the hope of any type of intervention. When we're mm -hmm. talking about fentanyl and that type of thing, the, 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 the option and the intervention is going to be probably death. Death, yeah. And I can't imagine working in the field now. I know that people have that. 
they're cognizant of that mortality that, that, that they, they know that that's the deal. They know. And so the stress and the pain and the misery and um, people desperately trying to find something um, because we don't talk in clinical spheres, uh, uh, treatment spheres even, about the idea um, of staying genuinely abstinent without putting anything in your body. That's not really a thing anymore. Right. Mm. Hold on, I'm going to go. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're going to get it. This is, that's the heat at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah. So when you get sat down um, out of the jungle, uh, what what happens? I do. They come to me initially. Um, they come to me. They pick me up because I had another delivery. And I knew what's happening. I have enough statutory max. They're going to give me 120 months. I'm going to do eight years, and I'm prepared for that. That was part of the deal. This is what I signed up for. Um, one of the things about diversion court, when I my prior felonies back then, if you had a delivery of crack cocaine, they didn't allow you into drug diversion court. That's only for other people, other charges, and other types of drugs. If you sold crack cocaine, you weren't getting drug court back in before 2004. It wasn't happening. Wow. Yeah. This is That's what. That's terrible. This is what. And so people, yeah, we've come a long way. Yeah, We've yeah, still yeah. got a long way to go. So yeah. I was prepared to go do this. I didn't know that I could get into drug diversion court. They came to me and said, would you be interested in doing it? I said, uh, you know, you got the wrong guy. Um. Do you, are you sure you got the last name spelled right? People never spell my last name right. They said, yeah, you're you're Michael. Um, is, is this you? I said, yeah. They said, would you be interested in doing treatment? And um, if you finish treatment and do the whole program, we'll take this felony off your record. And I was like, yeah, why not? I'm figuring, hey, it's a reprieve. There's not going to be any orange jumpsuits, no gray buses. I got a shot at maybe I can con the judge and maybe break the system. Because remember, I'm not on community custody. They're not being as harsh out there. They're not riding around with vans and SWAT teams picking up people that are on Department of Corrections custody and all that type of thing. They're not running warrants in. And so I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And so I did 90 days. They have a 90-day inpatient treatment program inside the jail. And so I started doing that. And, I, and I'm one of those people. Uh, I'm not institutionalized by any means, but having been raised the way that I was raised, um, given the opportunity of structure and what that looks like, um, I can do programming. I can, I can program or school or any of those types of things. That's the easy part. Um, staying out of trouble and keeping my mouth shut, that's the, that's the difficult part letting you know how I stand and how I feel. You better know me, and this is that tough guy, that persona that, that always gets in the way of my success. So I was able to, 90 days, I could do that. I could do that. And this time in treatment, something stuck. Something stuck. I have no idea what it is. I have no idea. I have no idea. What I do know is this. When I got done with the 90 days of treatment, drug court said, um, 
we are going to need uh, information on your next of, uh, of your, um, who's your emergency contact and all that. And I was like, they said, well, we um, supply you with housing. And so some of the information, we're going to do some preliminary paperwork and get ready to give it to such and such nonprofit so that they can we contract with them and you're going to get a, having a, a little studio over on Capitol Hill and we'll hook you up and you don't have to work. And I, and I was like, wow. So I just, I just did it. I just did. I just stuck around and just kept my mouth shut for the first time with no back talk and finally gave myself a shot. I did not intend, this was not, it wasn't shut my mouth like, oh my goodness, I'm ready to change my life. It was, shut my mouth so I could figure out the lay of the land so that, because I got drinking to do still. I just got to hang out long enough to figure out what that is. What does this look like? What is the UA algorithm? Maybe I can figure that out um, when we get there. And um, people just came into my life that were different. And that's when I started going to meetings. Mm -hmm. I started have they required me to go to meetings. The first uh, phase of the program, I had to go to five meetings a week, I think, minimum. And within a month and a half, I was doing eight to nine meetings a week. Eight to nine meetings a week. And I would, uh, I didn't have a job. And so I would volunteer at the meetings. I would pour coffee. I would work at the snack bar at the, at the, at, at the check, hall. At the mm -hmm. hall. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. We heard about you. Yeah. We <laughs> yeah. heard like you did like a lot of volunteer, like yeah. participation. I had to, I had to, because there was other parts of recovery that I didn't know how to do, and I wasn't really willing to be that vulnerable. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. There's some requirements that have to come um, that nor people that are normal, they're able to do that with family members, therapists, um, their kids. Um, they're, they're in, they're emotionally, they come in, wired different they're not better they come in wired emotionally and spiritually they come in wired a little bit different the access into that idea of me sharing my my issues in the right way without da damaging somebody else while i do it they're able to do that we don't that's one of the things that we learned how to do right i yeah. I'm sp i shouldn't speak for you guys but no, yeah. i learned how yeah. to i learned how to convey how I was feeling and what kinds of things I needed to uh, unload in a way that is not going to crush anybody else. And in what form do I do that? I learned how to freaking get a sponsor, right? And I would unload. There there I unload. And I'm not really unloading it on him. I'm unloading it in a, in a fashion that uh, I'm unloading it on paper. Because mm -hmm. it is refuse, man. It's not really something that you go hand off to somebody else and get their hands messy, right? Um, and so that was part of that. I had to volunteer, and I had to be involved. I had to meet people. I had to say hi. I had to look people in the eye. Um, I had to say yes and amen to a whole lot of things that were really uncomfortable for me because the, I always expected there to be some sort of trade-off or something transactional about the whole doggone thing when it comes to recovery. Yeah. There has, these people got to want something. Yeah. They're, they're not the, it's not like a, it's not like a bad hustle or anything, but nobody does nothing where I'm from. For free? Mm -hmm. For free. 
for free. I remember that that was one of the issues I had. Was that like, yeah. dog? I would go into these, and you know, you put your dollar or two, but man, I know there there's a bill coming, bro. You ever had like those bills show up where you thought like, man, you know, they said that there was no no fees or you know, you went to the doctor and uh, but then here comes the bill. Yeah, and then I, I thought. <laughs> paid, po- paid, paid post. Man, I remember just sitting in Cherry, like, man, they didn't. This ain't right. Yeah. There ain't no way that we're getting all this. Like, this is something is off here. But I stayed. But yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that was basically it. I just stayed around long enough, and um, I started to actually meet people. Um. And I behaved myself and talked to learn how to talk respectfully again. That was hard, man. It, it, that type of thing is, I don't think I was about cussing anybody out, but I sure was about imposing my personality on other people. That was something that I did when I wasn't using before recovery. Um, I was still insecure. I still did insecure stuff like, you better listen to me. You're wrong. I got to always be mm-hmm. right. That You know that, that game? Yeah. Yeah, there was still some of that. And so I learned, um, I still do it. You know, I still do it. Yeah. yeah. I got a lot of, I still got a lot of that. I just don't, I don't beat people over there. I'm able to pull the sledgehammer back at yeah. the last, you know, at the last minute. It's just, so it's just a tap. It's not a full-on swing, right? Yeah. Um, it's interesting you talk about just even, like, your language and the way you carry yourself and interactions with people and like because that was my thing too like when i first came to recovery like honestly like i stopped sagging my pants I, 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 like little things like that that i saw other people that the way that they're doing it like a lot of the older people that i admired in recovery like they weren't sagging their pants they weren't cussing like and it's just little changes like that that kind of helped me and like people showing me the way to do this thing like not telling me but showing me in ways that like when I would hang around people that I was drinking and using drugs with, you know, I heard somebody share this about how people would show you how to how to drink, you know, how to take the swig of alcohol, how to roll a blunt, yeah. like how to do <laughs> these things. And yeah. But this is like in recovery world, it's like learning how to do all these things. Like you're talking about writing the inventory yeah. and all these powerful tools we have. It's like people have to show us how to do it. Yeah, totally. I And that's the thing. That's one of the things that really um, – the inventory was a tough concept, not to understand, but a tough concept for me to come up with a reason why you want me to execute that and why. It was. It is the last bastion of denial for this alcoholic. It was the last bit. I was still in denial until that point. So that goes, all right, so we were at the Magnolia Speakers meeting. <laughs> yeah. And Carolyn's sitting there with you, and we're, you know, we're having a fun time. <laughs> and Carolyn calls you out like, man, it, it it took a while for you to hit that that inventory. Yeah. And then I was shocked. I was like, wait, what? How long <laughs> did you do go without, like, yeah. doing the inventory? And that was one of the things where I was like, no way, dog. Yeah. For real, like, like that – I don't know. It's such a freeing part of the process. Yeah. And and just to hold on to it. I mean, everybody has their own journey, right? And yeah. and that's that's but I just remember you saying that and being like, "Man, that's yeah. that's I mean, it's fresh because like you've done it." Yeah. And I was just like, "But man, like the 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 growth that or the time that in between that." Yeah. And here's the deal. Had it not been for 
the bottomless pit of despair that I had been in prior to coming in recovery, I would not have a frame of reference to protect me during that time before actually getting it on paper because that stuff was still fresh in my mind. Right. Some people yeah, don't. Grace. Yeah, yeah, Grace. That my was grace. like, oh, this, the, where, mm-hmm. you, like, your mind is just, yeah. oh, no, no, no. Yeah. We're not doing that. Yes. And so, and I, I'm blessed for having been through that situation. Or it could have been the other way. If you wait that, for some people to wait that long, is is it could be could be death and destruction because they don't have a frame of reference of I, I we don't want to compare bottoms but I'm sleeping on a freaking cardboard box underneath the largest international freeway in North America I'm sleeping under that joint sometimes with no blanket in a t-shirt in 40 degree weather right and so that is fresh in my mind the smells the feeling the despair all of those types of things. The gnawing in the pit of my stomach was really fresh for me. And so my refusal and staunch denial, it's not a refusal, it's a denial of my need to have to do that type of that type of work because uh, my situation is different, right? Uh, my, I, I was so down in there, I don't have to do inventory. I totally understand where I was at. Mm. That the only part that I have to take with me is that I have a frame of reference that reminds me only I don't want to go back to that. I still got to do the work. Yeah, the death and destruction is what saved me from going back out during that. I have seven years clean and sober, man. I picked up even a cigarette. Come on. Check this out. Come on. Check I didn't this touch out. a spiral notebook <laughs> until year shit. five. Listen to this shit. Until year, yeah, five. year five. Until year five. Yeah. And I And listen, I worked with I have, uh, I have, I've had two sponsors. I have, uh, I've worked on inventory with uh, one of the sisters in the program. I worked on some of it and on how to do that and put it down. Didn't do it. Uh, I've done daily inventories with Carolyn. We went to a convention. She showed me how to do a daily inventory. Do that tenth step upon you know yeah. upon retiring and all that. Yeah, I good have, night. I good have, night. Yeah, yeah, I have yeah. people in my corner that were like, Mike, come on, man, you you don't know. And and here's the thing: as soon as I did that, it, life changed quickly. Rocketed, rocketed, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> rocketed. No rear view mirror on a rocket, right, Rudy? <laughs> no yeah. rear view mirrors on spaceships. <laughs> yeah. And here's the deal. I met I met you guys. If it wasn't for that group of people that um because what we do know, what we do know is when you come when you're around long enough, you will see people that get cut out and rejected for not actually executing that. In very subtle ways like it's great seeing you at the meeting, but uh, we're all going to thirteen coins. And oh, do we did we must have forgot that we didn't invite you, or that person that hasn't yet done the work feels very insecure about being around those mm. people. Yeah, thank God I have the personality that I do. I don't dive in as much as I should now, and I have resentments about how I think people in the program should show up for me. Like, invite me here, and that you guys weren't around, and yada, yada, and I let people have it as of recently, and I need to. 
I for this guy, I need to reel that in, right? And remember that people they really went out of their way to um, pull me through this process. It wasn't just my sponsor. Yeah, my sponsor just facilitated that. I had to get shoved into the door of inventory in that fourth and fifth step by like twenty five people, and I bet you I could write them all down on paper who suggested get in the work. Yeah. I could write them down right now. I bet you there's more than twenty five. And I'm not hesitating while I'm writing either. Right. If I did that. It's a flow. <laughs> it's, a, it's a steady flow, right? And I just, um, I'm blessed that that I was around people like that, that were like, you know what, Mike? It's okay. That they let me share because I've been to meetings over on the south end of the county. If they know that you haven't done the work and you try to mm. get up there and go ahead and give a black belt share, <laughs> they're going to say so. <laughs> They're going to let you have it. Leather jackets and and uh, and black t-shirts and all. They're going to let you have it. Sit that down, man. We don't want to hear that, man. Learn how to pick up a pen, you mu- Yeah. Right. Mm. They do all that. Yeah, old school shit. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So so uh one of the things that we had talked to uh, talked to you about before we kind of hit hit the road running was like where where you kind of are now and like the beauty of like where um this recovery process has taken you and uh like where i don't know if you're free to talk about like what yeah. you do yeah oh, oh as yeah, far definitely. as your job and, and yeah. things like that i can so. be it without being specific yeah i yeah. work i work um i found a community of people that um it was accidental it was through carolyn was the one that told me about it Carolyn's fire. She said she'd come on here, by the way. Yeah. Oh, she's coming uh-huh. through? Yeah, yeah. 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 We yeah. On, on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Carolyn. So Carolyn, uh, she she decides that. So Carolyn is like my supervisor at work. I, we're both to this the, day? No, not, oh, not okay. to this. Back in the day. Back in or, the day. She uh, was, yeah. yeah. When I first, when I got a job, Carolyn was like my supervisor. So she's hammering on me about this thing. Damn, I wouldn't really, I don't know. <laughs> You know, never hammering. mind. So Let's skip that part. Yeah, 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 all right. yeah, yeah. She's, she's periodically <laughs> hammering me. Anyway, she uh, she decides that she uh, she does starts doing some other work, really reaching out and being in the business of helping people. Um, and I, how did you do that and get the training and blah blah blah? What did you do? And she lays it out for me. So I got involved in this community of persons that. Um, they do peer support work, um, different agency than she works for, but uh, along the same lines. And so that's what I do. I do um, I'm a peer support specialist and certified peer counselor, and that's basically what I do. And I uh, I work for an agency that is really big in Seattle, and they um, the court system, the library system, and, and a lot of other things. And one of the places they have um, they um, help people out at is methadone clinic right here in seattle and so i'm that's what my position is i'm a resource specialist with um at evergreen treatment services which is a clinic uh, outpatient moud clinic for persons suffering from opiate use disorder right down in, in seattle in, the, in in soto so yeah and what is it what does a day look like for you when when down there because i've driven <laughs> i've driven by there when it's yeah. time i don't know if there's like a specific time in which yeah. cats mm-hmm. come and then they come, and then they go. Yeah, they um, the clinic opens at 5.30 a.m. So I'm there at 5.15 in the morning. And um, What is methadone for people that don't, methadone may not know? Methadone is, uh, 
it is a medicated assisted treatment. It what it does basically in layman's terms is it curbs the cravings and the um, withdrawal symptoms um, that people get from using um, opioids, so heroin and synthetic opioids. It helps curb that. That it knocks that gorilla down in order for, the, for persons to really get through their day and get through that initial. And it has, a, it has a shelf life within the body that allows them to operate under. They're able to go to work if they need to. They, anything that we, you and I do, they're able to do when they're doing that, when they're under that treatment, provided that they're doing it, right? And so I help support people through that who haven't quite got to the point to where they're self-sufficient, right? So looking for transportation, Navigating toward housing. Uh, what else? Uh, documentation is a big one. When you don't have a court system and a, a correction system within that drives the whole treatment complex by putting people through prison, you get treatment that way. Prison, you get mental health treatment. Prison, when you get to work release or you get released, you have the ability to get paperwork to get ID, documentation, et cetera, et cetera. They know who you are. When that, that construct isn't present, people don't have that. So people aren't able to get jobs, sign up for services and all those types of things without that. So we're at a point to where um, government entities on the surface, that initial like, we're intervening, that, that is no longer a thing. And so they don't have, the, I have right. to, we have to help them get those things in order to, so they, the, the more that we can do in navigating services for persons, the better they have a shot at concentrating on maybe getting some support, mm. right? Do they, do you, do they show up like no ID? A lot of people are out on the street, don't have ID. They, and so um, there's a new, there's new legislation that allows people to now get an, will get an ID for free. People don't even know that they can do that. And so I help them navigate through that man um, i know you guys probably talk about this at work like is there any solution to this fentanyl thing i got two friends that died from fentanyl overdose like what what is the solution here because it's looking bad out there still because of the experience that myself and other people in the recovery community i can't say all but a majority of us that have come to this solution Granted, they may a person may not want to do it the way that we did initially, but one thing we all know is there had to be an intervention and a direct <coughs> chopping off of the access to get that stuff in your body. Hmm. If that does not happen, you have no shot. It starts just, with that. It starts right. with that. You got, you, we got, yeah, the chop. You have to eliminate access to that stuff in order to get somebody to, okay, Here's what your situation. This is the brevity of your situation. You can you already know we're well you are well aware of what the consequences of this can be. You can die. Would you be willing to not have access to we don't have a system that says we used to have a system that says you're not getting access to any of this stuff. You're gonna go sit in this box. We don't have a system that says now, um, would you be willing to go somewhere where you do not have access to that involuntarily. Hmm. Because I can say my situation was not voluntary. I had consequences. It was a result of some consequences for some behavior 
that instituted that. So we don't have a system in America that says, take that person away from access to these substances. We no longer have that. Not without, you got to do something really drastic in order for the police and the courts to get involved. That's the, to answer your question, yeah. that's what it is. You have, we have to have something that, where people can't get access to it, man. Yeah, see, it like reminds me of like a jump out, man, where you like, if you like, you take these cats and be like, man, like you're coming with me and we're gonna go, we're gonna go away. And it's not jail, it's not prison, mm. it's not, it's none of that. It's like, we're gonna give you a shot. Yeah. And, and that shot is not, I, I mean, I'd love to say I want people to be like willing, but like for me, that that chopping point saved my life when it when it mm -hmm. when I could not. There was something about well when I when I went to treatment Lakeside Milam, you could walk out if you wanted to, but I saw what what people would do when they walked out is like, yeah that <clears throat> that's death to me to me I would walk I would see oh no I can't do that, but it's that sitting down and not having access to that drug. I remember my. I remember I was I was plotting out where my drug dealer could come. Ugh. I was plotting it out. I was like, so if he came here and he came there in the in middle of the, and I think and it would just be a slow thought that would just fester a little bit and then it would be like gone. Nope, that ain't happening. And and I didn't have his number and it was just a blessing to be able to to get the chop, but yeah. I don't know, it just gets me thinking on like how how would we yeah. Get the chop started. You could even call too. it the chop. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> just from chop. your perspective, just as like two citizens, we're yeah. three citizens just sitting here. Like, how can we push for something to happen? Because there's obviously a terrible solution going on right now for well, this thing. It, the thing about it is, is um, when it comes to people asking about solutions, because I'm involved from in many different facets with different committees and people from Olympia and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. One thing that is happening is persons that got to the goal or they're living in the solution like you and I are, are not the ones that, those are not the voices at the table. Mm. They're not the voices. There are people that mean well, but the idea right now of people fronting a, uh, fronting a solution of you don't have to, to die you don't have to there's a way that we can work with you and there's a there's a, a method if you are willing there's many there's more than one method to get abstinent right. let's not get we just happen to know mm -hmm. of one there's other avenues of, to get to abstinence and stop putting that poison in your body and those voices that have come to a solution without coercion nobody gets beat to death inside of a meeting or or waterboarded or anything like that those people, those are not the voices being heard when it comes to solutions on how we can help people and how we can, um, people can start saving their lives. Because right now it's like the hot word is like harm reduction, right? Harm reduction is, harm reduction is absolutely necessary, hmm. but it is not the treatment. It's not the solution. It's a tool within the solution. It's hmm. a tool within the solution. Because mm. one thing we know, like I just used the, we can't waterboard people into treatment, right? right. So we know that we, some people have to come along in a method and a fashion that is uh, that can that can help them, and 
slowly come to the realization and slowly institute support and slowly get to a level of acceptance that says, you know what, that has got to be better than this. Slowly take this away from me and wean me in a direction and walk with me until I can get there. Don't leave me standing here in the middle of harm reduction. Mm. Lead me to harm reduction and walk me out of it. And the sad part about that is, like, some a lot of people don't make it. Like, they're they're slow. Harm reduction gets them to death because they that stopping point is it's a really hard thing to be slow drip to, like the the solution. Yeah. Like, <laughs> here's a little crumb and here's a little crumb and here's and eventually you're gonna get a whole loaf. But yeah. like. We're gonna we're just gonna crumb you. We <laughs> we yeah, that's the thing. We none the idea of recovery in the way that I've come to come to live in recovery is not an easy quick deal. It's not. Right. It is not a quick deal. You for myself, it took The regular living, showering every day, doing my laundry, paying bills, all that stuff, that took, to get to where I was in 1988, 89, 91, 92, where I was responsible and living, for me to get back to that level of responsibility and understanding it without the drugs and alcohol, took me three years of uninterrupted, no nonsense, no law enforcement, no partying, no going to clubs, no nothing. I didn't have anything interrupted me, and it still took me three years to get there. So what I, I say that, and I share that because um, we cannot offer, as a society, offer an idea. There are no quick solutions, and we need to stop selling that to persons who are having these people in their care. You are just because we put you in a... You could build you could build a hundred apartment buildings in Soto down in the industrial district. You could build a hundred part that you still have a hundred you still have a hundred units of people that are still suffering. They haven't gotten any better. They're just a little bit drier and 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 have a little bit cleaner area to operate in right. at least for a minute. Right. right. They have somewhere to cook some food. Big deal. That's if they want to eat. We have not addressed the situation taking away access to that and giving people just a shot to say, hey, I'm Mike, I'm mm. Pete, I'm, I'm Rudy, I'm Amir, I'm, I'm, you know what I'm saying, I'm Hannah. We have, we have people in our ranks that are willing to say, hi, my name is, and you know what, I know this, this doesn't feel good, but I know a way that you, you, I can tell you it's going to get better. Just hang on for today, man. Just hang out. Hang with us for, mm. to, for today. Yeah, come on. Hang with us, man. We'll get you home. We'll pick you up. We'll make sure that if we can't get there, I'll get somebody there who can, right? And they're not even being afforded that, man. They're not even being afforded that because the society is telling them, you're on methadone or you're on fentanyl and you look how dirty you are and you have, uh, unless we do something aesthetically uh, uh like give you clean clothes in a place that you're not no not where that's not who we are as people in recovery there are people that have this whole idea of what we do twisted none of us look like this coming in the door <laughs> mm, come on 
And one of the things that mm. we one of the things that we know that we survive on, one of the things that we know that we survive on, particularly the Seattle community and people in recovery, no matter what a program you're in, mm. whether it's a smart recovery, where it's fed the faith-based recovery, NAAA, SLAW, it doesn't matter. One thing that we know, we show up for the person who's brand new and the most suffering. We're only as good as the person who's suffering the most. We're only as good as the person who's suffering the most. That's how good our recovery is. So one of the things that we've learned uh, through sponsorship and get sponsored is like sometimes that cat with like 30 years is the most suffering. You know, mm. he's just sitting there, right? He he he's just untreated out or whatever. He's he is suffering, yeah. and so it's very important to identify that. Even though we get all sober and everything, man, there's still cats that are struggling. Now, look, we don't. They might have dressed up nice, got the gold, and then got the you know S five hundred, and and but but that, like you said, it's just like we're we're trying to all stay on the mountaintop and like. And and we're bringing up these new cats that don't even have never even seen recovery or models of it. And you know, it's funny because like cats that see me, and see you, and see Michael, they don't understand. Like they're new, and then and then they're like, "Man, come on, bro! Like you weren't that bad. Oh, yeah. You didn't live. You didn't live. You know, you didn't hit <laughs> fall down and hit your head, and like you didn't live in you know the jungle. And I didn't like just." Yeah. Nod off in the middle of all different types, you know, you know? Yeah, with Junior in the car and some more man. nonsense, right? Man. But that's what, I mean, you talked about people just, like, come hang with us. Like, right. that's kind of the yeah. idea of this podcast. Like, come virtually hang with us. Yeah. See how we're living. See how we're looking. Come on. Yeah. You know, they can't smell us, but, you know, yeah, we're Yeah, we, we good. We're all good yeah. over here. Right, Mondo? Mm -hmm. How you feeling over there, Mondo? <laughs> and here's the deal. Here's the deal. Walking up the sidewalk, I got no problem pulling out my tap. And paying for somebody to get something to eat. Come on. But here's the deal: you ain't. We're we're at a point to where people are suffering so bad they don't even know how to ask for that. Right. I mean, what's scary is like one of the things mm. that we've talked mm. about many a times on this show is that we are in Pioneer Square. Yeah. Outside mm. of this door, there are cats that are getting high on whatever. Yeah. Right now, like we go to the bottom of the stairs, they are there. Yeah. What's up? There's a smoke shop, right? And these cats are coming in. And out, in and out. And yeah. here we are doing what we're doing today. And it's just, it feels so good. But it's also like, man, there's more work to be done. Wow. And so so wow. I just, uh, Michael, um, is there anything you want to share with the 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 group out here, the family, uh, um, before you go? Oh, well, yeah, we, I, I, got, I got to thank that initial Marianne. Who just had forty-one years? Come on, Marianne, yeah. one of the Marianne, most brightest women women in the world. The first person to ever talked to me in Cherry Hall, like speak to me. She said, "I'm glad you're here. I can't wait. I'm so glad you're here because wait till you see what happens." Basically, telling me everything that has happened in my life right now. She said, "Oh, that I I knew that was going to happen because you know that she's it." Her spirituality is on a different plane. Yeah, she's definitely yeah. serene. Yes. Yeah. And so she she delivered it like that. And it was that initial, like, she held both my hands. I was like, oh, my, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And I was like, I've never seen this one. She was glad I was there. And that was one of the things initially that I always go back to that I stay. And so, like, like Terry and Delbert, <laughs> Hannah, um, 
Seth, uh, Carter. I remember I met most of those guys. I remember the first time I met I met Seth, and I was uh, I was in shock about how down to earth and cool him and his him and his girl were. I just didn't understand how. Why are you? How are you guys? I had no frame of reference for people that were cool. <laughs> that yeah. were I yeah. thought that that was done. I thought that that was done. And so, if you asked if I had anything to say to family, yeah. Uh, Seth and Amir and shout out Amir, man. Yeah, oh, yeah. everybody just na- everybody you just named, but like, yeah, that was, Amir was my man. He used to come to NEA, yeah, and just blow that blow the socks off of cats, including myself. And mm-hmm. I just, I mean, man, that man, um, you know, he's doing his thing right now. Yeah, and, and but so is everybody else. Yeah. Everybody, you know, Delbert, Hannah, yeah. Seth, Marianne, you know. Yeah. Carter, Sasha, yeah. you you name yeah. that group, right? That group kept me here. Yeah, that group kept me so, sober. So. They that that because they showed this love of like, hey man, like it gets better. And they were kind of they were not kind they were cool, man. Yeah, like I always yeah. my frame of reference of sobriety was man, these old ass white dudes yeah. smoking packs of cigarettes. That was my and that was yeah, it. Me too. That was it. That was it. And that's one of the things why we're here today is to show that, like, yo, uh, nothing against the old white dudes smoking cigarettes. But, like, we got some we got some cool stuff going on. Yeah, we do. And it's cool to be sober, man. It is. It's cool. It's cool. Um, you're going to, if you know somebody's suffering, if you know, just be patient and uh, just be patient and pray for them, man. We don't have the ability as human beings to uh, to impart what we have. We can only do it by um, when you get to this level. When you get to a certain level of recovery, you begin to understand that um, it's going to take other things besides the human hand in order for this to happen. Right for it to take place. And so you you asked earlier what needs to happen. It's going to be, it's something has to happen that is not of human hand. Come on. In order for people out here to stop suffering. And it's yeah. not, all we got to do, we just got to have the ranks ready and have the chairs warm <laughs> and keep the coffee brewing. Come on. Yeah, right? That's Come what on. we got. That's our job. We got to keep the coffee brewing, keep the seats and the doors open so that uh, people have a choice to make at some point. They're going to get a choice. And for... Uh, that initial choice is um, stay. And if you're coming, come on and join us, man, on this happy road to destiny, man. Man, Michael, that closes out it with the hottest yeah. shot right there. We <laughs> yeah, appreciate man. your time, your energy, I love Rudy. You guys, man. Yeah, man, Michael, yeah. Ed, that was short notice too. too, man. We yeah. seen you. You, you, you kind of hopped on a little like yeah. you seen us what we were doing, and you were like, "What's up, Pete?" Like. You know, I got it any time, you know, and that's what we're finding is a lot of cats are able to, like, give their time and their energy and, and share their story, man. And it takes a lot of courage to, I mean, put it out on wax. And so we, yeah. we appreciate you. Thank uh, you, my brother. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, it's been a Love special. You, Thank yeah. you very much, man. Yeah. Sober champs, baby. Yes, absolutely. Right. Thanks. Yep. Yeah, thanks.